want you to know the Reverend Eric Grayson. He has a missional heart. He is the senior pastor of Aldersgate United Methodist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. And he just leaks orthodoxy. He's a walking example of, you wanna leak orthodoxy. The walking example of a warm-hearted Wesleyan expression of the Christian faith. It's why we invited him to lead our task force on missions with marginalized peoples. It's because he gets it, he just does. He's a graduate of the University of South Carolina. He received his Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School. He and his congregation at Aldersgate Church have created a nonprofit called Holy City Missions. And this is not an average grade nonprofit. Holy City is now pursuing the establishment of a $4 million missions campus and year-round shelter for marginalized people. Yeah. Eric also spearheaded the creation of a summer day camp program to provide affordable childcare where they, care, where they share Jesus with kids all day, every day. It is a great privilege to introduce Eric to you. Will you join me in welcoming him as he comes? Well, good morning, and thank you for having me today. My scripture text comes from the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed." And all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I need you to help me out, folks, as we get started. I need your help both here in the house and for those of you in our simulcast sites. I need you to look to your neighbor right now, and I need you to say, neighbor... Oh neighbor. oh, neighbor, have you ever been lost? Ever been lost? Now look to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. Oh, neighbor. oh, neighbor, are you ready to go on a journey? The time in my life where I felt the most lost happened a few years ago. My college roommate, Robert, and I got the bright idea to do an adventure race. Well, if you've never done an adventure race, let me tell you what it is. It's where you sign up in this particular race to do a 12-hour race through the Francis Marion National Forest in Low Country, South Carolina, and you're supposed to find 30 checkpoints hidden throughout the woods, and all you have is a map, a compass, and coordinates. Now, we thought, oh, yeah, we can do this. This will be easy. 
Well, that national forest happens to be 258,000 acres, half of which is swamp water. So the morning of the race, we arrive there, and we get to the site, and they put us on this bus, this old-school bus, and it's like 4 a.m., the sun's not out, and we start driving and driving and driving for what seems forever into the middle of the forest down dirt roads, and they kick us off. We don't know where we are, and they say, are you ready? Get set, go. And people just start sprinting, trotting like gazelles into the woods. It didn't take an hour before Robert and I realized we don't see anyone else. Now, mind you, we're all looking for the same checkpoints together, but there's not another living soul around us. All we can hear the sound of mosquitoes biting us. And so we keep trekking, trying to make sense of this compass, trekking and trekking. Eventually, we're up to our knees in swamp water, in the muck and the mire, and we're trying to take a bearing and a straight line, but it's really hard to do when you're climbing over logs, up embankments, and you're up to your knees in filth. And I had to admit two things in that moment. One... We're helplessly lost. And two, why did I pay to do this? (laughs) Folks, that lost feeling is something that I've begun to feel again lately. I begin to feel that lost sense a little bit when I look around at our denomination thinking, where are the bearings? Where are we going? Because it seems that we're just going in circles trying to get somewhere, but just going around and around and around. Now, I gotta tell you, The United Methodist Church has always been a special place to me. I say this with a heavy heart because the United Methodist Church has always been a special place to me and my family. For generations, this denomination has shepherded my family. And it was in the United Methodist Church that I was baptized as an infant. And it was in the United Methodist Church as a youth when I returned back to the church and I discovered the love of Jesus that transformed my life. And it was in the United Methodist Church one evening after youth group that my best friend and I were attending Sunday evening service and I heard a sermon. I couldn't tell you what the sermon was about today, but I remember in the middle of that sermon thinking, I could do that. I could preach. And at the end of the sermon, I turned to my buddy and I said, hey, man, I just had the craziest idea. I was just thinking about being a pastor. And he looks at me and he says, no way, man, me too. (laughs) You laugh, and now he and I both are pastors in the United Methodist Church today. That's how God works, I guess. He zaps us, and one of them was collateral damage. We still don't know which one is which, but we're both still in the ministry. I say that because the United Methodist Church has been a place that shepherded and formed me for so many years. With each passing year, I've got to grow more and more in the grace of God through this church. But at the same time as I've gotten to experience God in this place, I've also become aware of an alternate narrative at the same time. I become aware of a narrative that's moving in a different direction, becoming more and more aware of our internal debates and disagreements that we just keep having going in circles on. I've become aware of the issues we're having surrounding accountability and how we can keep or not keep our covenants, questions about what does it mean to be Wesleyan and how we keep fighting over who gets to claim his heritage, and even at times how we disagree on the nature of God and the person of Jesus. I've struggled early on because I felt that there were two conflicting things I was wrestling with at the same time. I felt called by God to preach and teach and be a minister. And yet I felt that the church that I loved was woefully sick, stuck in the muck and mire of its own making. And I wrestled, how do I hold these two things together? How do I answer the call in the place that I love and yet the place that I love is so wounded? 
And I struggled with that. And I wrestled with that. And I prayed over that. And eventually God laid a word on my heart. And the word that he laid on my heart was simple, but it was this. He said, this is where I'm calling you right now. I mulled over those words. This is where I'm calling you right now. That gave me the freedom not to have fear for the future. It also gave me the freedom to say, hey, maybe God has a purpose for me just in this moment. That's all I have to worry about is being faithful in this moment. This is where I'm calling you right now. 2,500 years ago, the people of ancient Israel experienced a mess of their own. You see, suddenly what happened to them is they found themselves overtaken by the Babylonian Empire, scooped up and forcibly taken into exile. Imagine what it would be like to be taken away from your homes, your vineyards, your livestock, and your livelihood. Imagine what it would be like to be taken away from your place of worship. They were removed from their synagogue, from the temple, from the place where they understood this is what it means to be in the promised land. Imagine the emotional trauma of having to leave behind your home. Imagine the spiritual trauma of having to wrestle with what does it mean that God has given us this land and now we can't see the land anymore? But the people were scattered across the Babylonian empire, surrounded by a people of strange beliefs and foreign gods where they had to huddle together to practice their own faith, but they had a hierarchy that didn't always agree with them bearing down on them. We wouldn't know what that's like, would we? The people... We're in exile, and Isaiah gives a word for exile, and the word that he has is wilderness. It's a wilderness kind of experience that lasted for many, many years, decade upon decade for an entire generation. Exile is tough. Wilderness is hard. Now, when you're lost in the wilderness, as I was in that swamp, I can tell you that when you're lost, you're beginning to look for some way out. You just want to hear something. That's what uh, perked up for me was my sense of hearing. I was thinking, okay, I'm in the middle of nowhere, but I know that in the middle of this national forest, there are some service roads somewhere. Maybe I'll hear a car or, I don't know, an airplane or some music. Or, or maybe my hope was that I would hear another team, a voice in the distance. Maybe I would just hear something, and that would be a sign for where to go. Well, after decades in the wilderness, Israel finally heard the voice that they were waiting for. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah as a voice crying out in the wilderness, comfort, oh comfort my people. Tell them that her service has come to an end. I can tell you folks, when you're in the wilderness and you finally hear that you're coming out, your heart is filled with joy. There's so much excitement knowing that your wanderings have come to an end. When I was in that wilderness, it was the voice of other people far in the distance that let me know that, hey, you're going to get out. It's a good feeling. But I can also tell you, you hear the voice in the distance. That doesn't mean you're out of the wilderness yet. You're still in the woods. You still have a little bit of a way to go. And that's exactly what's happening in the passage for the people of ancient Israel that we just heard this morning. They hear a word from God that Isaiah proclaims. He's basically saying, get ready. The time of your exile is coming to an end. The new thing is just about to take place. But he has a word for them in the moment. He has a word for them to remember everything that happened to them in exile. Now, the significant thing about exile is exile wasn't just a waiting room, 
all right? Exile wasn't just a place that God sent them to say, hey, you're in a holding pattern until I do something new. No, exile was the place where God was going to reform and renew and sharpen his people. Exile was the place of being made more of who God was calling you to be. I believe that those wilderness moments shaped the people of God, not just then, but today as well. Isaiah, in so many words, is telling the people that for you to move out of exile into that promised new thing, you have to take the lessons of the wilderness with you. There are two lessons of the wilderness that Isaiah lifts up in this passage that I think are important to the people of God both then and today. Two lessons that are interwoven that I think we need to pay close attention to. Isaiah tells the people, he says to them, that all people are like grass. The flower withers, the grass withers and the flower fades. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? That'll preach on a Sunday morning. Just get up there and tell them, hey, you guys, y'all aren't gonna last too long. Get ready, put your plans in place. But God is telling the people, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure. He's saying to them that we can't build up our movements on our own initiative. We can't build our own futures based off our own prejudice and our own preferences. That will never work. You see, what, what was it that put the people of ancient Israel in the exile situation they were in in the first place? It was because long before the exile, they had leaders and choices that were made that just weren't faithful. They made decisions that didn't uphold the word of God, and it happened for generations and generations. They did things like bringing the idols of the nations into the very places of worship that were reserved for God. They did things like forming alliances with the other peoples where God had told them, don't do this, this will compromise your integrity. They proclaimed peace, peace, when there was no peace. Folks, I wonder if we've experienced the same thing in our day. Have we had moments where leaders have brought in the idols and the ideas of the peoples and brought them into the house of God? Have we had moments where we've made alliances with movements and causes that compromise our integrity? Have we had leaders who have said things like, peace, peace, when there is no peace? Folks, there's a problem when you work for a movement of God. You see, a movement of God cannot be sustained by human initiative but only by the word of God which endures. If, I'm excited to be standing on the threshold of this new movement. And it's a movement where we're saying that the word is going to be so central to what we do. It's an important thing. But let me tell you, as we embark on this new endeavor, the way we approach the word matters. There are some things we can do and some things we shouldn't do. We should not just adopt a slogan and tell the world, hey, we've adopted this and now we're saying we're Bible-based. That doesn't cut it. Nor can we have an approach to the scriptures where we say this is a contextualized word and we neglect the witness of 2,000 years of Christian interpretation. Nor can we have an approach to the word that's a regionalized word that drops an iron dome over our own cultural interpretations and says we will not engage the majority Christian witness around the world. We cannot, we cannot do those things. Instead, we need to develop a movement that has a richer and deeper engagement with God's word than what we've known before. That will take creativity, it will take initiative, it will take prayer. 
it will be an important thing for us to do. We must develop a biblical catechism that teaches the people the faith where they can revert back to the word of God with the tough questions of their lives. We must allow scripture to be our primary authority in matters of worship, in theology, in our social witness. And we must find ways to make sure that we have an expectation, a holy and joyful expectation for the people called Methodist to engage in God's word daily in devotional practice. I have a theory that the success of this movement will hinge on how we treat scripture, but the proof will not be anytime soon. You see, all of us are united in a common and shared experience in this thing that we're going through right now. A shared experience unites the people. We're the builders, builders stick together. The question is going to come, what will the next generation do when they're faced with the next thorny challenge? Will we prepare them to have a shared biblical theology? Will we put in place now the resources that they will need so that when they worship, that scripture just flows from their heart in song and praise? Will we give them the rich spiritual disciplines they need to rely on in hard times and all times? The success of our movement won't be known for some time, but we're laying that foundation today, here, now. Isaiah tells the people of God in so many words that a movement of God is not dependent upon human initiative, but the word of God which endures. As we move from a place of wilderness into the new thing, we have to remember these lessons we've learned as exile ends. I've spent some time thinking about what did it look like when exile ended? Have you ever thought about that? What did it look like when the exile came to an end? Did Cyrus just wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm gonna send them all back home today. And they just packed up their things, jumped in a U-Haul and traveled back to Jerusalem? Probably not. In fact, we know that's not the case. Scripture gives us a witness that says that the end of exile was a process. It took time. People went in waves. People went initially when the word first came out. Then there was a group that went later when Nehemiah went to go rebuild the infrastructure. And then later Ezra went to reestablish worship and strengthen the life of faith for the people. As I'm thinking through and imagining that moment then, I want to think, okay, what was in the back of people's minds as they were making that migration. Of course, there are those who are ready to just go right then. Okay, we've been waiting. But there are also those probably who said, okay, let me get my household in order first. I need to get my affairs in order. I want to go, but I gotta make some preparations. But then there were those who also had to be released for the new thing. There were those like Nehemiah. Nehemiah worked for the king. He had to get permission to make the journey. And it would have been a journey too. Imagine in the ancient world traveling from wherever you were dispersed over that empire going back home. Imagine gathering all your things, putting it in a cart or an animal or possibly huffing it. Imagine the roads you'd be traveling, difficult roads with obstacles along the way. Imagine having to brave potential bandits or the elements only to get there and you think, yes, we're here. And then you get there and that's when you have the work of either building from scratch or rebuilding. Folks, Exile to that promised new thing is going to be a difficult journey. There are going to be obstacles to face, questions that we don't know how to answer. Not everyone's going to travel with us. But honestly, as I'm thinking about this, we, we might say, okay, how difficult is it going to be? But really, I don't think that's the question we need to ask. The question we need to ask is, is it worth it? 
And if we were to ask those first people of Israel that went back and got to have worship of God in the holy city for the first time in a generation, if we asked them, is it worth it? They would say, yes, it is. And if we were to ask the prophet Isaiah, is it worth it? He would say, God says your term of service has ended. And if we were to ask the Lord, I believe what God says to us is, this is where I'm calling you right now. The journey from exile into God's promised new thing will be a journey, and it will have its ups and downs, but it will be a moment of building something holy, and holy work is always worth it. In the church I serve, we're located in a a poor community, a lower economic community, which is exactly where the church is supposed to be. And the church I serve has some, some really poor housing all around the perimeter of the church. And, and we had several years ago this woman named Sybil that lived in a house just adjacent to our church property. Now, Sybil had led a rough life. The lines on her face made it obvious that she had seen some hard days. Sybil was trapped in a loveless marriage that she longed to get out of but just couldn't. They didn't have food on the table. It rained in her house, but her husband was too proud to accept the help that we offered Sybil would come to our church's food bank, but she'd just sit on the benches before she'd accept the food, and tears would flow down her face. She had convinced herself that she was far too sinful, far too wicked. She had put herself in a self-imposed exile. And we'd give her the bags of food and beg her, saying, God loves you so much. Please, this is for you. Take it. We love you. You were always welcome here. There's an argument convincing her that this is for you. It's free. You can take it. We could never even get her into worship. Well, this continued for months on end. Sybil coming, Sybil crying, Sybil, God loves you. Well, then after a few months, you can imagine my surprise one Sunday morning when she showed up in the back pew of the church, seated back there, tears quietly streaming down her face. She had heard a voice in the wilderness. And during worship that Sunday, I presided over communion. I concluded the great Thanksgiving, and I said, will our communion servers come forward at this time? Oddly enough, none of my servers stood up, but Sybil did. Sybil stood up in that back row, and she shuffled to the edge of the pew, and she got to the aisle, and she started limping down the aisle. Folks, every eye in that church was glued on this woman. You could have heard a pin drop. She shuffled to the very front of the church. She got to the steps in front of the chancel, and she just stopped. She wobbled And then I kid you not, she fell over at the waist like a wet noodle, her hands on the steps, her rear end facing the congregation, and Sybil crawled up the steps of the chancel. She put her hands on the altar, and she pulled herself up. She put her hands out. And I said to her, Sybil, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. It was the most awkward and undignified approach to the altar I'd ever seen, and it was the holiest thing I'd ever seen. Folks, the journey, the journey from exile to promise new thing, it will be a journey. It will have its ups and its downs, but if God calls us, when God calls us, we will be more than conquerors. Amen and amen. Eric Grayson, wow, awesome stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I could relate. We were just talking about this. I could relate to that land navigation story of, yes. of being lost and, 
and and alone and uh, trying to figure out where everybody went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a scary feeling not seeing another soul. And, and your 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 image of exile, I thought, was fantastic because it does feel like that, particularly in places where we're more isolated. Hmm. I can imagine so, and I thought that's going to be a different experience for everyone across the connection. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I loved how you talked about, too, that it's a process, that it's it's going to take time, because I think that's really encouraging for people to hear, to know, number one, you're really not alone, and this is going to be a process that God is going to use. I loved that part. Well, thank you. Um, One of the interesting things about being here this weekend has been talking to people from different conferences, different countries uh, in this movement, because everyone has a different set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. We're not all going to be able to to join together at the same time, and it's going to look different for each and every one of us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All people are like grass. I I never thought of that particular verse in the way that you put it, which means you can't build your own future. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, okay, it's talking about mortality and things like that. And you know, like, it's terrible. All of you like grass. None of this really matters. You know, it's kind of almost ecclesi- <laughs> It's almost like an Ecclesiastes moment in the middle of right. in the middle of Isaiah. It's all vanity, you know, just suck it up and drive on, <laughs> you know, but, but, but you can't build your own future. And that Israel really did try to do that. And that, that was a, that was a revelation to me, just thinking about those kinds of things that when you put it contextually, here is Israel in exile and they're, and the reason they're there is because they tried so many different ways of figuring out their future. Mm-hmm. It's just such a sad thing. I mean, it was actually kind of a little, I enjoyed doing the research and then just thinking through that part of the passage because, I mean, there's so many examples. We're all tempted to do that. That's mm-hmm. human nature. We yeah. all want to do that. But that's where we need good um, Christian accountability to check mm-hmm. each and every one of us so that we don't lead in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have to have a strong base. And you, you talk about, scripture and getting back to a a biblical catechism Mm -hmm. and we just had yesterday at the global legislative assembly we adopted a catechism for the movement and i think it's really wonderful and solid but in many ways we were talking i was talking with rob renfro earlier the catechism of the early church wasn't just around what we believe it's also how we act yes and that that way of being in in christ that those early christians were catechized in the sermon on the mount as their primary focus like does your life look like this mm-hmm. and that's really what when you're talking about getting uh, treating scripture how we treat scripture not as a poster mm-hmm. <laughs> right but yeah. rather as a as a as a way of life mm-hmm. i meant to uh at the last minute, I was thinking about adding this, and I just didn't. The Bible I, I brought is one of those Wesley Study Bibles, the one with the brown and green leather covering. And um, I've got two of them. One of them my, my late mother gave to me, so it's doubly special for that reason. Mm-hmm. But um, the leather wears off. And so when I take that Bible places on either one of them, the, the Bible rubs off on your clothes, on your hands. Uh-huh. I've got green and brown on my hands, <laughs> which is always a great reminder to me that the Bible should rub off on our day-to-day lives. It should be all over us. Yes. And we just can't. It, it's there. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> In a holy kind of way. Yes. But yes. An unintentional so Cokesbury uh, right. <laughs> effect. <laughs> Object lesson. That's right. That's, oh, awesome. that's awesome. Yeah, we actually give we actually give one of those to every new member family that joins. Um, nice. We give the CEB version 
the cover's a little less uh, marking, but I like the idea because I have one too and it's fading out. Is it, yeah. is it getting on your hands? Yeah, it does. It'll it get, it the Bible will get under your fingernails. Yes. yes. <laughs> You're walking around, though, well, there's the Bible. Um, yep, yep. So. <laughs> yeah, to be so engaged with the scripture that it rubs off that on you, literally. On you and others, mm-hmm. yeah. That's yep. fantastic. Anything else you want to add from this? The Sybil story was powerful. Oh, that was good. <laughs> uh, we've had so many moments like that, particularly around communion. Um, you know, there's so many things that, you know, will shape and form us, which too many to get into, but like for us in the church, you know, communion, we, we've adopted mm-hmm. that as a weekly practice, mm-hmm. and I've seen so many holy moments around the table, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, just our worship life, our scriptural life, I'm just, I'm excited for uh, a time of renewal, um, but eager to do the work. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, as someone who also, we celebrate communion every Sunday, mm-hmm. it's our altar call, mm-hmm. and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. No, you have no idea. I, we, I, tell me if you've had this happen. Um, we have we have a, a baptismal font at the front of our chancel, so mm-hmm. you have to pass the baptismal font to get to communion. Um, I, we, I want baptism to be in the way, in a, a, the mm-hmm. best way possible. But a lot of our you know our members will dip their finger in their hands and sign the cross if they want to. Constantly, we have little kids who come dip their fingers in it and then try to lick the eat the baptismal water. <laughs> um, the parents always freak out, which I just think is the funniest <laughs> right, thing. Right, right. But there's this engagement. They're trying to make sense of what baptism means yeah. and what coming to the table means, and they're, they're probably putting more thought into it than a lot of us adults do. Yeah, oh, I love that. Um, yeah, and I just love those moments. Yeah, yeah when too. people talk about infant baptism or kids taking communion, one of the arguments they always give is. They don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I always say to this person who says that, I say, do you know what's going right. on? Because <laughs> I don't think any either. of us truly grasp right. all of it. That's so no. true. Well, and I loved how you said about that Sybil moment that it was the most undignified moment you'd seen, but the most holy moment. And I think that was such a good way of having us think about coming through this process because it is some of it is very undignified but that's okay that's just really good god god is the one making it into what it needs to be Mm -hmm. and if we're we're available to him i'm confident it'll be good yeah if you wanted normal you should have stayed an unbeliever (laughs) that's right (laughs) good Good. Good stuff thank you so much for joining us eric thank you guys appreciate it yeah